Welcome to the Knox Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this is a blessing to you. Let's jump into the sermon. My name is Darren Nettleton. I'm the Director of Youth and Young Adult Ministries here at Knox. I'm so glad to be worshiping with all of you on this, the eighth day of Christmas. Remember, in the, Chris, in the Christian calendar, Christmas is 12 full days. That song isn't for nothing. It starts on the 25th, and it doesn't end until Epiphany on January 6th. One of these years, what I'd like to do, I'm telling my wife this because I've not ever told her this, and I figured this is a good forum. <clears throat> One of these years, what I'd like to do is to spread all the gifts out over the 12 days. Can we do that at some point? You can say no, I mean... One, one year we'll do that. So we're still in the season of Christmas, and we will be until after the 6th when we will have Epiphany and then enter into ordinary time. So let us open our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, to the second chapter, and we will read uh, verses 1 through 12. From Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. In the time of King Herod... After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened in all Jerusalem with him and calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Brace yourselves, brothers and sisters. This morning, we are going to talk about politics. I know, I know. It's the first day of the new year, and we're all in church to worship God, which is quite possibly the best way to begin the new year. And we have great music, and we get to see one another, and it's all going so well. And here I am. (laughs) 
bringing up politics. And who asked for that? I don't really want to. <laughs> I'm tired of this subject. I'm not an expert. I don't know anything. It is all too complicated, and there are so few right answers. And besides all of that, it just never seems to make a difference. I show up in November, and I color in the ovals, and I wait for a change that is never as big as promised or feared. Taxes are always high. The roads are always bad. Schools are perpetually underfunded. Dumb laws are passed. Wise laws are repealed. And I feel like a small boat in a very big ocean. Not quite powerless, but definitely limited. It was the time of King Herod. A man important enough to mark time by. A man who had for a long time ruled as king, though he actually wasn't a king. To this king, not king, who marked time, came magi from the east. Perhaps there were three, though they were not kings. And the Orient is a terrible description for where they came from. But nevertheless, men came, advisors perhaps, astrologers, sign chasers. They came because of a star that stood out, out of place, out of time. And they traveled to find a king, the first real king in the whole story, who had been born somewhere, somehow. And the non-king Herod was frightened. And all Jerusalem, the subjects of the non-king, were frightened with him. Publicly, Herod inquired with the wise men of Jerusalem as to the location of this true king. Privately, Herod sent the wise men of the east to find this true king and to report back. He claimed it was so that he could pay homage to the true king, but non-kings who call themselves kings aren't the kind of people who pay homage to true kings. Especially when the true king is just a helpless child. These wise men from the east were wise enough to find the boy, and once appropriate gifts had been given and homage offered, were still wise enough to keep the non-king out of their return home. Where the wise men from Jerusalem were and why they did not seek out their true king, I'm not sure. Perhaps because Jerusalem was afraid. This is a political story which is why we're going to talk about politics this morning. Not that I want to. It's a political story beginning to end because Jesus is a king and kings are political. The power of kings is political in nature. The rule of kings is a political rule. Now, of course, Jesus is not only king. He's also a prophet and a priest. 
He is a savior. He is the incarnate word of God. He is fully God and fully human. He is God with us, Emmanuel. But he is also very much a king. Herod is a king insofar as he is a king only because Rome allows him to be such. And Rome can allow Herod to be king because they have a very nice army. But Rome will not always have such a very nice army. And so Rome will not always be able to decide who will be king where. Before the Romans, the Greeks had a very nice army. And after the Romans, the Germanic barbarians had a very nice army indeed. Jesus, being a child, does not have an army. His claim to be king is, as such, very unlike Rome or Greece or the barbarians. As unlike all other worldly political powers, Jesus' claim to kingship is not grounded in an army. His claims come more simply and more purely out of the true fact that he created all things. In him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. The world, the universe, the cosmos belongs to him because he made them. And so he has every right to rule all things. That's what makes him king from birth, not an army. And not just a king, but the king. And to talk about kings is to talk about politics. Politics is the management of the polis, the city. And kings certainly manage their cities. Kings are politicians. And follow me here, Jesus is king, the king. So therefore, Jesus is a, or perhaps the, politician. The whole scene with the non-king and the wise men of uncertain number and the baby king who made all things is a political scene. Now we tend to read it, we prefer to read it as a religious scene. As at the same time we tend to pull apart the political and religious separating them, church and state, which is understandable and yet frankly irresponsible. We hear of these magi who desire to find a king to pay homage to, in some translations, to worship. We read of the chief priests and the scribes consulting religious scripture to discover where this child was born. We read of signs in the stars and of dreams and warnings, and we think of this as a religious scene, which it is, but the religiousness is a moot point. Everything is religious, especially in the ancient world. Every sunrise and sunset, every birth, every coup, every success and failure, all of it was driven by some god or another. And so every facet of life in the ancient world required prayers or worship or tithe to appease the god or gods who sent the rain or caused the goats to fall sick or brought the locusts across the land. It's all religious. The religiousness is a moot point. 
And we do this. We read this scene as primarily religious with no remainder because we are comfortable with religiousness too. We, we meaning us here in the church this morning. God talk doesn't make us blush. God talk doesn't raise our blood pressure. We might not be quite so wrapped up in religion as in the days of the prophets, but we still expect it, especially on a Sunday morning, especially here in church. We encourage it. We even may long for religiousness. And so we read this scene and we see the religiousness in it, the miracles of star and dream, the boy who is God and king. And we are perfectly at ease. But to bring politics in, well, maybe you wonder if I'm crossing a line. Maybe you think I've taken away from the worship Maybe you think next Sunday you might just stay home if you have to hear about politics from the pulpit. I told you I didn't want to do it. I told you I don't know anything about politics. I'm not happy to be talking about it. But I have to tell you the truth of the scripture that is in front of us this morning. And the truth is, it's a political story. It's a political scene. It's a political baby, Lord Jesus. Here we have, in the Gospel of Matthew, the first scene post-birth. And this first scene doesn't take place in the temple of Jerusalem with priests and scribes calling a feast of purification and repentance to prepare the way of the Lord It doesn't have a miraculous moment of healing, a casting out of demons, calming storms. It's not an argument about the meaning of the law or an interpretation of some prophet. The first scene in the Gospel of Matthew with the baby Jesus is centered on the impact of that birth on the political machinery of the day. The chaos and the fear that came into the leadership of Jerusalem and Rome at his birth. The threat he brought to the rights and the privileges of so-called kings. It's a political scene. Now these verses, they don't tell me or you or anyone else how to vote in the next election or how we should have voted in any previous election. They don't make a case for large government or small government, for representative democracy, direct democracy, a constitutional or monarchical system, socialist or libertarian or anarchist or communist regimes. And it is true that the church, especially perhaps in America, has often struggled to to walk with wisdom in the realm of politics. In some moments, the church has conflated theological claims with political opinions, such that sermons serve as stump speeches. And at other moments, the church has been so anxious about politics, so fearful that it has denied any moral or spiritual component to the civic action of its congregation. 
In our own moment, some of us may desire to hear our own political opinions championed by our churches, by our reading of Scripture. And so we might refuse to consider the ways that our faith may challenge our political imagination. Some of us may draw a division inside of ourselves and wish that division to be projected onto our churches, that nothing contained herein should impinge on our political beliefs, that the church has nothing to say about matters of the polis, of the city, that no sermon or scripture should ever be considered to be making a political claim. More likely, we're a combination of both. We use scripture and theology and the teachings of the church to support our political opinions when they line up, and we cry foul when scripture or theology or the church suggests our political opinions might be wrong. But this is a political story. And as nervous as that may make us, to deny the political implications of this story, and as a result, to deny the political implications of our faith, our Lord, our worship, would mean, quite simply, denying the fullness of the gospel, which is to deny the fullness of Jesus, King Jesus. And so, we must be willing to consider the political dimensions to Scripture, to the life of Jesus, to the work of God in the world, whenever and wherever it appears. The story of these wise men reorders political structures and places them all at the feet of Jesus. The gold, the frankincense, the myrrh, those were lovely gifts. But more importantly, the wise men walked away from the not King Herod in search of the true King Jesus and reserved, held back, kept not only these three gifts, but the more important gift of their worship, their obeisance for this child alone who was king, king of kings. And all who follow Christ must do the same. There are a great deal of not King Herods in our world. People and structures with power and might who can do us great harm or great charity. People with very nice armies indeed. And we must continue to find our way to King Jesus. We must hold back the worship, the obeisance, the gifts that belong to Jesus alone. The Apostle Paul says it this way. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. We must live as though Paul is right. That Jesus is our king our chancellor, our president, that we are citizens of his kingdom, held by his laws, secured in his freedoms, which he has obtained for us.
Freedom from sin and for love. And we must do this first. And this is the case for every Christian. It's, it's only when we can all together hear the story of the wise men from the East and gather together in common identity as subjects, political subjects of the true King Jesus, that we can then, from that point of agreement, from that common commitment to our heavenly citizenship, begin to ask the hard and lifelong questions about how to navigate and negotiate all the earthly citizenships that push and pull and threaten us. The point I am making is that the unity of the church, which precedes and holds together our very real disagreements is not merely religious, that we worship one Lord, but it is also political, that we worship one king. And if Jesus is king, the politician to whom we offer our allegiance, then when we come to church on Sunday, When we open the pages of scripture and sing hymns and meet in Bible studies, we will be willing to hear, to see, and to be shaped and formed, not just religiously, but politically. There are caveats on caveats about what specific kinds of political claims are appropriate in each of those spaces, pulpit, hymn, Bible study. This isn't a carte blanche for pastors or teachers to mindlessly commingle their politics with scripture. The number of ways to go wrong are, of course, innumerable, but, but this is the church. We do much riskier things here than talk about politics. We say that God, in Jesus, died and is now alive. That the world that we see filled with sorrow and death is fading away. And that the Holy Spirit has come with joy and life for all who ask. We confess our sin together and wait for forgiveness together. We baptize infants Asking and expecting God to take care of them. We get married until death do us part. And when one of us dies, we make the audacious claim that they are with Christ, alive. We are the church. We do much riskier things than talk about politics. As we come to sing our our hymn for this morning, the title of it is filled with the things that aren't true about the story. We three kings of Orient are. There weren't three, they weren't kings, and again, the Orient is a terrible description of where they came from. But the rest of the hymn, the rest of the hymn, if you can get by the opening words... If you have eyes to see, this hymn speaks 
to Jesus as king, to the political dimension of our faith. We do much riskier things in the church than talk about politics. So let's stand and sing to the Lord, we three kings. Thanks for listening. For more information on how to get connected here at Knox, please visit knoxprez.org.